0: John Finnegan and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What is a miracle? Does it mean God breaks the laws of physics or merely that he intervenes within the system? After considering several definitions of miracles from Christian thinkers, Will Barlow interacts with a number of biblical incidents to explain what a miracle is and is not. He examines the parting of the Red Sea, Moses getting water from the rock, the collapse of Jericho's walls, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and Daniel in the lion's den. For each, Barlow looks at how God performed the miracle shedding light on how science and scripture interact here now is episode 475 part 14 of our scripture and science series what are miracles with will barlow
1: welcome back to scripture and science we're in session 14 now and here at the end of the class i thought it'd be fun to share a little bit about the topic of miracles. Miracles have been somewhat controversial over the ages, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that too. And every person's definition of a miracle is slightly different. In fact, if you you go talk to someone and say, they'll say, oh, well, this is a miracle. You know, some people talk about a baby being born as a miracle. Trust me when I say that it looks like a miracle when you're not the one doing it, when your wife is doing it, I'll, I'll tell you that. It's a remarkable thing. But again, that, you know, scientists will say, well, that's the way our bodies were designed. You know, they'll say "I where our bodies were evolved depending on how they view that, but they wouldn't call that a miracle. And yet many of us would call that kind of a thing a miracle. So what, what is a miracle? That's where we're going to start. Uh, we're gonna start by defining a miracle. And then I'm going to give the archetypal example of a miracle or what I would consider like the number one example of a miracle in the entire Bible. And I'm just going to wait and let you see what that is. I'm not going to tell you what it is now. Uh, And then we're going to look at some other examples. And just to give a caveat here at the beginning, I want to be very careful here. When I say that there are possible scientific explanations for the mechanism for some of these miracles, I am in many cases not saying this is the only way it could have happened. I'm just saying here's one possibility. Here's one way we could understand it. There may be other ways. It may have happened a completely different way. So what is the big deal with miracles? Why are miracles important? And probably (coughs) the best example from history is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was essentially a deist. He wasn't a full-blown Christian. And one of the reasons why was because of miracles. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson edited a version of the New Testament and he removed all the miracles from it. He said he could believe that the rest of it historically happened, that he believed the person of Jesus existed in history, but he did not believe any of the miracles. So Thomas Jefferson as a, is a great historical example of someone who had a problem with miracles. Interestingly enough, the other one was the Trinity. <laughs> He's got some pretty scathing comments about the Trinity. You can Google that if you'd like. So in modern times, miracles are still controversial. It's still something that comes up when we engage with people outside the faith. How do we think about miracles? What's a good way to handle them? I'm going to start with, I think, a pretty strong view of miracles. And this is Christian philosopher uh, Swinburne. And what I mean by strong, I mean he's got a very high view of God's ability to do things however God wants to do them. And we may have some disagreement. Some of us may have some disagreement with some of the things that he says. But I think he's an interesting case. So I'm going to read a quote here from Swinburne. He says, what the theist claims about God is that he does have a power to create, conserve, or annihilate anything big or small. And he can also make objects move or do anything else. He can make the planets move in the way that Kepler discovered that they move or make gunpowder explode when we set a match to it. So on one hand, he could set things up the way that we see it in the world today. Or he can make plants move in quite different ways. And chemical substances explode or not explode under quite different conditions from these, which now govern their behavior. God is not limited by the laws of nature. He makes them, and he can change or suspend them if he chooses. So Swinburne's view on miracles is yes, God could do whatever God wants to do. And if he wants to suspend the laws of physics at any time, he could suspend the laws of physics, or he could change them anytime that he wants to change them. So Swinburne has a very high view of God's sovereignty and God's power. And when that translates to miracles, basically he says, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. Francis Collins has a somewhat softer view of miracles we met Dr. Francis Collins when we talked about evolution. Um, he's a former agnostic current atheist, turned Christian after he became a medical doctor. He wrote the book, The Language of God. Here's what he says about miracle. He says, a miracle is an event that appears inexplicable, inexplicable by the laws of nature and so is held to be supernatural in origin. So what Collins says is, if something happens that appears to be inexplicable by the laws of nature then we would tend to think that God did it, that it's supernatural in origin. And so that's how he defines a miracle. Uh, We're going to see that I have an actually even softer view than this of miracles, but we'll get to that here in a second. I don't think that an event has to be inexplicable by the laws of nature to be a miracle. Here's what uh, William Lane Craig, the famous philosopher, we met him earlier talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. When Craig talks about miracles, this is what he says. He says, You see, natural laws have implicit ceteris paribus conditions. That's Latin meaning all other things being equal. In other words, natural laws assume that no other natural or supernatural factors are interfering with the operation that the law describes. So you might have a question. Well, what does that Latin phrase mean? What does ceteris paribus What does that mean? So let's do a quick thought experiment here, and that will help us understand what's going on here. Imagine then, apple is falling from a tree. Now, if you don't intervene, what's going to happen? It's going to hit the ground. It's going to go thud and maybe roll a little bit or something like that. But gravity is going to fall. It's going to make it fall until it hits something that's going to hold it up. Now, what happens if you do intervene? If you intervene and you catch the apple? Well, all of a sudden, is the law of gravity wrong? No. You have just intervened using the laws of physics. There's no, there's no breaking of the law of gravity by catching an apple. I mean, I guess in some sense, you're like, you're suspending it in air, but, but you're using a force, a positive force that's overcoming the force in the opposite direction of the gravity. And so that doesn't invalidate the theory of gravity. That doesn't invalidate the physics. All it's saying is, hey, I'm intervening. I'm doing something here. I'm operating in the system. And so we can see God doing the same thing. And so this is, in light of all this, in light of the different views on miracles, and these are very smart men I just quoted. I'm going to disagree with them all just a little bit here. What I'm going to say is a miracle is when God acts in an improbable way. However, miracles often fit within the boundaries of the theoretical limits of science. And we're going to look at a couple examples of that. Now, here's another caveat. In other words, a miracle may be unexplainable by current scientific theories. That does not imply that God has to be breaking his own rules. Remember, as humans, we're limited in knowledge. Our knowledge of science isn't complete. God's knowledge of physics and stuff is complete. So just because we can't explain things with our current scientific theories does not mean that God is breaking his own rules. And again, depending on your view of God's foreknowledge, if you hold to a stronger view of God's foreknowledge where he at least knows all future events that will happen, then before the Big Bang, before God created this whole thing, he would know by necessity how he was going to act in every situation. So don't you think he would have wired the universe to make his intervention fit with the laws that he's setting up? So I think philosophically even, we have good reason to believe that God works within his own laws. He doesn't have to necessarily suspend or break them or change them, even though I think he could. I mean, I think, I think Swinburne's right. I think if God chooses to do something, that's totally fine. I'm not going to pass judgment on God. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, maybe he doesn't need to break his own rules. Maybe he set things up in the first place to where he could catch the apple. And we see it as miraculous because we can't see the hand holding up the apple. It's invisible. The other perspective on what a miracle is, a miracle is not necessarily a miracle because of what happens. In other words, we don't have to think that the laws of physics or biology or chemistry or whatever are being broken every time a miracle takes place. So then why is it a miracle? What would constitute a miracle being different from this normal standard operating procedure of the universe? My take on that is when it happens, to whom it happens, and why it happens. If we can answer those questions, then oftentimes that will give us insight into that there's a miracle taking place. All right, the archetypal miracle, the classic example of a miracle, in my mind, the best example in the whole Bible that illustrates what I believe and why I believe it is probably the biggest moment in the history of the people of Israel. It's during the Exodus. It's when they crossed the Red Sea. Now we're going to get into, we're going to do a case study in session 15 on the miracles of Exodus, on the plagues, how they work together. We're going to talk a lot about the Exodus even more, but we're going to handle the the crossing here. And I just want to point out that the book that we're going to talk about, which is also called The Miracles of Exodus by physicist Colin Humphreys, he has a really interesting route. And we're going to discuss that route very briefly in session 15. But I just want to, to point out that in his view... When the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea, they were doing so at a point where geographically and geologically there was no way back. The only way back was to head straight toward the Egyptian army. And the only way forward then was to cross this water. So we don't have to view it that way. Maybe, maybe you could have a view where geologically or geographically they could have gone left or right instead of forward or back okay but i'm just telling you that there are strong historical and geographical and geological reasons i like colin humphrey's view on this a lot that they didn't have a choice of going left or right it was forward or back towards the egyptian army okay so i'm just trying to set the stage here a little bit so was the miracle the specific event only the actual fact that you could part water using the mechanism that the bible describes which we'll get to in a second or was the miracle that it happened in that place At that time, to those people. I think it's the second. I think the miracle is it happened when they started walking toward the water. I think that's the miracle from my perspective. All right, if you have your Bible, we're in Exodus 14. And the the brilliant thing for me, and the reason why this is such a perfect example of a miracle in the Bible, is that the Bible tells us how it happened. We're going to read it right now. In Exodus chapter 14, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And the Lord drove the sea back, period. No. It says, The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Next verse says, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So I have a question for you. Were the laws of physics violated in any way by the crossing of the Red Sea? No. In fact if you were to ask a physicist or ask people that work with fluid dynamics what is the one natural explanation you could come up with for an event like the Red Sea crossing they would tell you a uniform directional wind. That's exactly what they would tell you. And what does the Bible describe? A uniform directional wind. A strong east wind all night is what the Bible says. So not only does this fit with physics, the Bible explains the physics in very basic terms. How remarkable is that? So can we believe that this event happened? Yes. It tells us how it happened. The Bible explicitly tells us how God performed this miracle. Am I denying that God did it? No. I'm not denying that God did it. I'm saying God absolutely intervened, but he intervened using his laws, not violating his laws. So... What's the miraculous part? Well, in my mind, this is miraculous because it happened to the Hebrews. Okay, It happened to God's chosen people. That's bullet point one. It happened when God said it would happen and, more importantly possibly, when the Hebrews needed it. They've got an army behind them. I think that they were probably closed off where left and right weren't good options, very difficult topography. So they only had the option to go forward. Well, they needed it then. <laughs> That's the time they needed it. And it happened for a purpose, for the purpose of saving God's people from the Egyptian army. So it checks off all those boxes, and it doesn't violate the laws of physics. I think this is a miracle, don't you? This is absolutely a miracle. But it doesn't violate the laws of physics, but it does check off these boxes. So, from my perspective, reflecting upon this, as I've called it, archetypal miracle has really helped me in my thinking about miracles in general. And again, just because we don't have, we may not have, in in the cases we're going to talk about here in a second, we're not going to have the Bible telling us how how it happened. I'm going to be positing some theories as to why it happened. So this next part has a lot less credibility than what we just read, straight from the text, okay? And so I want to be very careful about that. We're not dealing in absolutes for the rest of the session. This, I can say absolutely, this is how it happened because the Bible says it's, it happened that way. But with the, with the examples we're going to go through here in, in a second, I'm going to give some possibilities. You may think of others. Or they might have explanations that our current understanding of science just couldn't get right now. And that's totally fine. That's totally fine. Or they could be exam- there are examples, I think, where God suspends the natural laws or breaks them. And I think he's got very good reasons for them. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that's the suspension of the physical laws I agree with that God does break his laws to some degree or another it, from our perspective we don't understand how to reanimate life and do all that so anyway just to couch that give a little bit of background that these are not God breathed explanations of these events so we're gonna look in detail with four other mi- miracles some of them I feel better about my explanations than others okay I did that on purpose I did that on purpose to provide a template for how we can think about these things and that we don't have to have all the answers on all these things. And some of you may have uh, knowledge beyond my knowledge of the specific physics or specific chemistry or whatever of these situations, and you might have better insights into these miracles than I do. And so if you do, I hope you, if you're watching this later, you put in a comment on YouTube or reach out to me via email or whatever the case might be. I'd love to hear your views on these and other miracles. So the four we're going to look at, water from the rock, uh, the walls of Jericho. We're going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. We're going to look at Daniel in the lion's den. Okay, those are the four we're going to look at. There are plenty of others to choose from and I'll briefly mention them at the end, uh, some examples of those. Water from a rock comes from Exodus 17. It's just a couple pages over. Exodus 17, people are in the wilderness. Moses is leading them and in verse 6 it says, Behold, I will stand before you. There on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses is there. He's hearing from God. God tells him to strike a rock. Water comes out of the rock. They needed water. God provided water for them in the wilderness. So I have two explanations for the water from the rock. First explanation is God could have led Moses to a location where an underground spring existed, okay? So in cases like this, even a relatively small amount of force could open up the opening where the spring is coming forth and then water could pour out of it. And then you could get water from a spring. Now this fits our current understanding of geology. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this perspective. So one possibility with the water from the rock is underground spring. Okay. Colin Humphreys in his book says, maybe it was a large porous sandstone. And maybe there had been a lot of rain recently in that area in the months preceding this event and the sandstone or whatever porous rock it was could have absorbed a lot of water and again if uh, we know in that part of the world rocks like this exist and shepherds and other locals are aware of this phenomenon where if they need water in a pinch they'll sometimes tap on the rocks and they'll get water out of these porous rocks and so again even a relatively small amount of forest, you know, not needing modern construction equipment like a jackhammer or, or dynamite or something, uh, you could get that water to come out. And again, this fits our understanding of geology, our modern understanding of geology. So there are two ways we could explain the water from a rock. Now, am I saying that either of those is the way that that happened? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that these are two possible scientific explanations and you may have others that you like. The record of the walls of Jericho is next. We're not going to read the whole record. It's a really remarkable record. And if you read it, there's a progression over time. God instructs the people of Israel to go around the city uh, one time each for six days. And on the seventh day, they go around seven times. And each time they go around, the priests blow the trumpet, but the people don't also yell. Then on the seventh day, which we're going to read about, there are people are instructed to yell, okay? So just building up a little bit here that my explanation is going to talk about the difference in the sound uh, energy, the energy of the sound. That's, that's what I'm keying off of here. But in Joshua 6, verse 20, this is where the miracle itself takes place. It says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So the problem here was the people of Israel were trying to take over the promised land. To do that, they had to conquer the city of Jericho, which had very high walls. So here we have the trumpets blown. And for the first time, when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they shouted a great shout. So now this is how I would explain this. I only have one explanation for this. Maybe you have another. But I believe that God, by revelation, gave the priests the resonant frequency of the walls. So, if you've never heard of what a resonant frequency is, uh, maybe you've seen the trick where people get their hands wet at a, at a dinner party and they rub their hand around the wine glass, for example, and the, the wine, it starts making a noise, right? That's the resonant frequency of the glass. more popular example of that is when an opera singer hits that frequency or hits a m- multiple of that frequency, The glass will, at a high enough, with enough energy, you know, loud enough, opera singer, you know, belting it out, the glass will shatter, okay? That's called resonance. And it turns out that there is an example of this in history, many examples of it in history. For example, uh, and we would say the Angers Bridge, right, because we're not French, but I think it's like Angers or something like that. Bridge in France, okay? It was destroyed in 1850 when French soldiers marched in lockstep over the bridge. So the bridge started wavering, and just because it's human nature, the people, the, the men that were marching, started matching the resonant frequency, which made it worse and made the bridge even sway more and more and more to the point where the, all the engineering pieces started breaking and busting, and the bridge collapsed and unfortunately killed a lot of these soldiers. Like over 200 men died. But the point I'm trying to make is even with modern building materials, we see resonant frequencies can cause massive damage to structures. And so my theory about this in relationship to the walls of Jericho is God gave the priests the right frequency, they blew their trumpets, and then think about it, if you are listening to a sound being made, what's your natural thing going to be to match that frequency? Or to harmonize. Right. And Exactly. And so if you could hit the resonant frequency loud enough, if you had enough people shouting around the walls and it's reverberating at that resonant frequency, I think that's where the walls started tumbling down. That's my take on it. Now, are there other possibilities? Absolutely. Could God have sent angels to kick the walls down? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that could still fit in the laws of physics because force was still being applied. You know? So a physical force was still being applied. I mean, the mechanism, of course, saying angels did or something like that, right? I mean, that's miraculous on that level. But still, it could be within the laws of physics. But I think resonant frequency explains it. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Let me know. All right, our next one is in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these first two I feel pretty good about. Uh, These next two, I think, are way more open to interpretation. So, and again, I did that on purpose because I think this is interesting to talk about these types of things. We're going to read two verses out of the record from Daniel 3. It's a wonderful record to read the whole thing. But we're just going to read a couple verses here. Verse 22, it says, Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, this is just to show. We can't say that the flame of fire was like dulled or something, you know, like this was a hot fire. it was hot enough that the king, you know, they heated it up seven times more than it usually was heated up to the point to where it killed the guys that took them in. Okay. Later, here's the end of the account. Verse 27, it says in the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hairs of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. So with these details in mind, and and in the record it says that God sent an angel. Okay, so there's obviously some, there was a reason the angel was there. We don't know exactly what that reason was, obviously to protect these men or to comfort them or to do something related to what happened. But I have two possible mechanisms for it, and it centers around what we see in verse 27. Because not only were they not burned, that's remarkable. What's even more remarkable is the smell of fire had not come upon them. Now, if you think about if you've been at a campfire before and if you sit within 10 or 20 feet of it for any period of time, you go home, you get acclimated to that smell, you go home, especially the next day, you know, you're, what's that? You go smell that, you'll smell the fire on your clothes. And these guys were put in the middle of a furnace, so hot that the guys that were leading them into the furnace got burned and killed. Because of those details, what I posit is essentially two separate ways To separate the men completely from the fire, one could have been some sort of force field, some sort of insulating force field. Okay, or perhaps it was like a micro vacuum where where oxygen couldn't pass between them. You know, if they had a micro vacuum, of course they couldn't survive in a micro vacuum. But essentially, both of these are bubbles. Bubbles on some level scientifically we could try to explain. They're bubbles. It's bubble boy theory. My bubble boy theory. is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it makes sense of what the Bible says. I'm trying to make sense of how come they didn't smell, even smell like fire. Now, are these the only ways God could do it? No. God could have done it any number of ways. But these are two ways I could think of. That's even you know these are probably quasi-scientifical to some people. Uh, most scientists they might even knock this down for not being scientific enough. But anyway, that's my that's my story. I'm sticking to those two options. All right, so. <laughs> Daniel in the lion's den, our last, our last example here in Daniel 6, verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So this detail is important because it tells us that whatever happened that night, Daniel was in the den all night. You can read the whole account if you'd like to, but Daniel was in the den all night. No one knows, other than what the biblical account says, what happened inside that den. And the biblical account doesn't give us a lot of details. It just They tell us an angel appeared. But there's not much about mechanism here. Verse 22 says, this is where Daniel tells him what happens. He says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths." There's a lot of ways we could interpret that. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, one theory would be maybe the lions just weren't hungry that night. Well, verse 24 says, Just absolutely craters that theory. And the king commanded those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, before they could even, gravity could finish its work, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. All right, so we can't say that the lions weren't hungry. (laughs) This verse is sort of morbid. It's also the verse that they always leave out of the children's Bibles, thank, thank God. You don't want that. the story ending there. You want the story for the children's Bible ending with Daniel. Daniel's okay, great, yeah, happy ending, all right. So how can we explain Daniel surviving the lion's den? There's two options I give here. Again, these are really open to consideration, and there's maybe tons of other options. Perhaps God caused the lions to enter into a temporary hibernation or heavy sleep sequence. Uh, we know that large mammals have the ability to hibernate, like bears, for example. Smaller mammals can on occasion also hibernate. So maybe there is some primordial hibernation or heavy sleep sequence God could have put the lions in, and maybe that's how God did it. We don't know all the details because, again, the stone was covered, and we only know about what happened because what Daniel says. And he just says, angels stop the lions' mouths, whatever that means. Stopping the mouths doesn't seem like enough to me because their bones were crushed by the paws before they even hit the ground, the people that got in afterwards. So in other words, I'm trying to think about what would not just stop their mouths, but would stop their limbs too. (laughs) Because a lion can still kill you without their mouth, okay? So here's the other option. Perhaps God hid Daniel from the lions. Maybe he could mask his scent or make him appear invisible to the lions uh, visually or whatever, whatever you would need to do all that. Perhaps God essentially blinded the lions from being able to see Daniel. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps it was a combination of these two or something else. Uh, But anyway, these are possibilities we can think about. There are, of course, many other miracles in the Bible, some that are easier to explain physically, some that are harder to explain physically. Uh, Here are some examples of that. The lengthening of the day, there's two sort of examples of that. There's the the lengthening of the day with uh, Moses and Joshua fighting the battle. And then there's the dial going backwards yep hezekiah yep and then you've got uh, gideon in the fleece you've got duplication of matter multiple times when matter gets duplicated you've got the woman and elijah and the the oil you've got you know jesus with the loaves and the fishes on separate occasions Um, so matter gets duplicated i've actually heard of modern examples of matter being duplicated pretty interesting wedding party didn't have enough pork tenderloin more people showed up than they thought and this person prayed, and they kept cutting pork tenderloin, and they kept being more and more pork. <laughs> That's pretty wild. A uh, friend of a friend uh, told me about that. Walking on water, you know, maybe the wind helped hold him up, which is Bernoulli effect, Bernoulli principle. Maybe God increased the surface tension of the water so that Jesus could walk on the water. There's a couple different options there. Uh, healings. God could speed up our natural body's processes in a lot of healings. Maybe it's just a speed up in a lot of cases. Of course, when you raise someone from the dead, that's a whole different story. And, of course, the greatest example of that is the resurrection of Jesus to never die again. That does not fit physics, nor is it, I think, meant to fit physics or our understanding of science. And it may never fit our understanding of science. It may only fit God's way of viewing the world because he would have built in, I believe, a mechanism for resurrection. Uh, again, depending on your view of foreknowledge, but, but obviously he feels... If it not, was not in its purview for whatever reason, it's obviously necessary now for Jesus and then for us uh, if, we, if we don't make it to when, when Jesus comes back. So with all those in mind, very briefly, lots of things to think about with all those miracles. Again, I want to return to my definition that I offered at the beginning, which is a miracle is when God acts in an improbable way. However, miracles often fit within the boundaries of the theoretical limits of science. I offered several theoretical possibilities for the four different miracles we talked about. And there are theoretical options for a lot of the ones that i posted on the slide before. And just because we don't have an explanation scientifically doesn't mean that God's necessarily breaking his own laws. He might be. He might be. But I don't think we have to define a miracle that way. I think the stronger way to go is to think about what we thought about with the Red Sea crossing. Who? When? Why? If we can answer those questions, that'll help us, I think, understand more about what truly makes a miraculous event a miraculous event. And so in the next session, we're going to focus very closely on the miracles of Exodus and do a little bit of a case study on the whole Exodus process.
0: Well, that brings this session to a close. What did you think? Come on over to Restitutio.org and find episode 475, What Are Miracles?, and leave your feedback there if you would like. On our last episode, someone named Mark wrote in saying, Hi Sean and Will, thanks for the informative episode. I have a question that is not directly related to the topic, but the question afterward caused me to think of it. You mentioned the kingdom that is to come, and it's been something I've been wanting to ask for a while now. I know that you always put a lot of emphasis on the kingdom of God and its centrality in the gospel message. This focus has been of great help to me, and just recently I've been rereading the Gospels to pay particular attention whenever this topic is discussed. Sidebar, Mark, I am working on a book on the Kingdom of God. It's a book that uh, really came out of my studies at Boston University some years ago, and just recently put the final touches on the introduction and the acknowledgments and so on, and so I'm hoping to get that. Published in 2023, uh, taking steps in that direction. Stay tuned for more information. My working title, of course the publisher will probably want to change this, is Kingdom Journey. And uh, the book basically goes through my journey of discovering the kingdom's journey. Uh, In other words, what happened to the kingdom of God? Who believed in it? It's a biblical and historical survey of what the Kingdom is in all its different dimensions, and then why the Church lost it, and how the Church recovered it. So, it's the whole story about the Kingdom of God, starting with its biblical underpinnings, cruising right through to its very sad rejection by Christianity, especially in the 4th century, 3rd and 4th century, and then its recovery in the 16th, and the 19th, and the 20th centuries, so that many, at least among scholars and Adventist groups, are very familiar with what the kingdom of God is. And so uh, stay tuned for more about that. i um, hoping that that will be, uh, once again, available in 2023. Mark continues, he says, Anyhow, now for my question. Basically, anywhere I go when this topic comes up, people assume that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that is already here on this earth and, that's, and that we're somehow part of it. I've always found this very strange, as evidently this world looks nothing like a godly kingdom. That's a great point. Additionally, during my reading of the scriptures, I have noticed it consistently seems to be presented or referred to as something that is yet to come. Now, maybe I'm not a great listener, but despite the many episodes I've listened to, I'm still not sure of your take on this. Would you likewise say that we already are part of the kingdom of God, or... Would you rather say that the kingdom is still to come, i.e. my current view? Whenever I start asking more questions about it generally, all I get is talk about some spiritualized kingdom instead of an actual one and not really any convincing evidence to back up such claims. Since this seems to be such an important topic to you, I was hoping you could help me out with a more useful explanation. Kind regards, Mark. Mark, this is such a wonderful comment So so much here to talk about. First of all, you said the kingdom of God is is so important to me. I take that as honestly like an incredibly high compliment. I am thrilled that one person even on the whole planet would say, Sean, the kingdom is important to you. That they would they would see that because to me, that means that I'm doing something right. (laughs) Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, he didn't say, seek it second. He didn't say, talk about it occasionally as if it's some sort of esoteric, eschatological slash apocalyptic topic. No, he he said, seek it first. Jesus said in Luke 4.43, I must go to the other villages and preach the kingdom, for that is why I was sent. So this is a purpose statement. Jesus' own purpose statement was to preach the kingdom from place to place. We see that in Matthew 24 Jesus says, the kingdom of God must be preached to all nations as a testimony, and then the end will come. People ask, well, is the end at hand? Is, it, is, it, is, is this the end of the world? Well, not until the kingdom gets out, not until all nations have heard this message. Sad to say, but Mark, you're absolutely right. So many do spiritualize the kingdom. I, I can't tell you, I, I sort of want to spit on the ground every time I hear somebody say this, this very popular phrase, advancing the kingdom. Honestly, I don't know where that comes from. That's not biblical. The church is not the kingdom, people. It's just not. We are too flawed, and we're a group of people who are citizens of the kingdom. Sure. We have the gospel of the kingdom that we believe in, that one day God is going to send the king to this world to make everything wrong with it right. Yes, absolutely. But strictly speaking, the kingdom is not yet here. Sure, it's in your heart. It's in my heart. If it's not in your heart, there's there's something wrong. Either you haven't learned about it yet, or there's some sort of objection or doubt that needs to be addressed. But strictly speaking, the kingdom comes when Jesus comes. The kingdom is defined as Jesus, according to the angel Gabriel at the Annunciation, Jesus sitting on the throne of David. Is Jesus sitting on the throne of David? No. There's nobody on the throne of David, and Israel is ruled by... Uh, prime minister. So, I don't think you can say the kingdom is here yet. Now, is it here in seed form? Is it here in our hearts? Is it here spiritually? Yeah, you can say all that, absolutely, and I I firmly believe in that. You know, I I think that we should have allegiance to the kingdom over whatever other allegiances we have to our countries or our, our provinces or our towns or our families, or whatever allegiance you want to talk about, that our, our kingdom allegiance and citizenship should come first. That's proper and fitting. But this idea that the, the, the kingdom just is the church, capital C Church, is, I think, totally wrongheaded and unhelpful. I do believe that each of our churches, our fellowships, our small groups, are to be embassies of the kingdom. In an embassy, let's say you're in France and you go to the American embassy. Inside the American embassy, you're going to find a little bubble of American culture. You're going to see pictures, paintings, items that remind the people there of home and that aren't readily available or valued outside of the embassy in the rest of France. Right? That's that's what embassies are to some degree. They're, they're peopled by citizens of a foreign nation who are representing that nation's interests in the place where the embassy is located. So it is with our churches. We are resident aliens who are cultured by the coming future that the Hebrew prophets all talk about that Jesus honestly was obsessed with and that even the Bible ends with. I mean, this is really the denouement, it's the climax, it's the goal to which all the Bible points, the great arc from Genesis to Revelation, from paradise lost to paradise regained. It's all right there. So that is the flavor that should be in our churches, that we should, when people interact with us, they should get a taste of the kingdom, that we should prophesy the kingdom with our behavior, with our words, with our hopes and dreams. So uh, that's how I think of it. I don't know if that satisfied you at all, Mark. I, I think if the kingdom is not in your heart, then that's a major problem. It should be in your heart, but that doesn't mean that the kingdom is here. In scholarship, George Eldon Ladd kind of pioneered this way of talking about it. You have the idea between kingdom inaugurated and kingdom consummated. And I think that can be a helpful way to talk about it. It's not strictly a biblical way to talk about it, but it's the idea that Jesus did inaugurate the kingdom He did take those first steps with his ministry, with his death, with his resurrection, and certainly his ascension, I think, is very significant to the reordering of cosmic authorities with him being seated at the right hand of God, which I don't think is locational, I don't think it's spatial. I think it pertains to his authority and his authority vis-a-vis the other spiritual powers that once occupied whatever the highest place was next to God before Christ. So in that sense, the kingdom is inaugurated, but it's not yet here. Jesus told a whole parable about this in Luke 19, where somebody goes off to receive a kingdom and then come back. It's not yet here, and we can we can tell that by the fact that the world is messed up and it's out of tune with God's will. Jesus said to pray, "'Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.'" That kingdom is already in heaven, it's where God's will is already done, and it's coming to earth. And we can be part of that, and we can partner with that in how we live and how we are, especially as communities of faith, Uh, but it's limited. We are broken mirrors reflecting God's glorious future to the world. And in that day, we will not be broken mirrors. We'll be resurrected in order to enjoy Life in the age to come, life in all its fullness, the way God originally intended, and even more because we'll have the whole story of redemption behind us and we'll go about the business of ruling the world in the way that God wanted it to be ruled. So it's very exciting, very much more motivating hope and faith than having a disembodied existence in an ethereal realm where either you're watching all the stuff that's happening on earth but you're unable to do anything about it or that you're sort of locked into some sort of eternal gaze or sing along in heaven. Sorry, but that 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 does not appeal to me at all personally. Now ruling the world, exploring the world, writing, creating, doing science, having relationships and hearing other people's stories, you know, that those that's the stuff of life right there. You know, going on uh, an adventure to a faraway place, taking taking our time to get there, having all the time, literally all the time in the world. You know, that, that to me sounds pretty exciting. So those are my thoughts on that, Mark. Thanks for that really good question. Additionally, I did also want to let you all know, those uh, three of you who listened this far to the end of this podcast episode, all my ramblings. Uh, is that I am planning on teaching a class on early church history starting in January. January 17th is my official start date for that class, and I will I will be putting that out on Restitutio. Uh, so uh, stay tuned for that. What I'm looking to do is go through the first 500 years of Christian history. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Jesus and the apostles because that's more New Testament studies than church history, so I'll Mention that briefly and then just jump right into really the second half of the first century and truck on forward from there. Going to be looking at a lot of interesting stuff. I'm looking at provisionally right now. Of course, this could change as as it develops, but about 22 episodes on church history covering important people, important events, overviews of different centuries. Going to trace a couple of doctrines, Christology for sure, uh, the kingdom, gifts of the Spirit and see how early Christianity developed and changed and also stayed the same. And a lot of times you see Christians holding the torch and doing awesome in a certain area, but in another area they will have totally lost the biblical or New Testament teaching on uh, this or that topic. So stay tuned for that. That's enough for today. If you'd like to support Restitutio, we certainly appreciate that. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.